you know, when I'll go when I go through them, you know, you'll 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 realize alcohol and drugs is mentioned one time in the 12 steps in the first step. That's it. Everything else is me. What's wrong with me in my mind? You know, so the 12 steps, it's the new design for it's a, it's a design for a new life, you know, and it's not about alcohol or drugs. That wasn't my problem. I'm my problem. I need to get out of my own way. You know, you know, I just use that alcohol and drugs as a solution. Yo, what's going on, guys? Welcome to a podcast. Not only is this a podcast, but it's our journey. A journey that we hope you want to ride out with us as we intend to educate you guys, inspire, talk about past and current experiences, and to make one think to stop judging others, most importantly, stop judging yourself based on others' views and perceptions. With that said, you'll be hearing from me, myself, Austin Kirshner, but along with our journey on this podcast will be my mother, Kathy Kirshner, and my brother, Dylan Kirshner. With that said, welcome to Silencing of Stigma. We're going back to the roots. Welcome back to another episode of the Silencing of Stigma podcast. Uh, before we start this episode, I just want to let you guys know that this is our first virtual guest we had on the podcast, and it went really good, and I'm, I'm excited for you guys to listen to it, but real quick, uh, our guest, he is a family member of ours, and it's been a long time, I'm talking years, since we spoke to him, and we had an idea that he struggled with addiction, but we just didn't know to what extent. So he's on this episode to share his story and to explain to us what the 12 steps are and how he used them throughout his uh, journey, as you would call it. So welcome, Dave, to the podcast. And I hope you guys sit back, enjoy, and um, we'll catch you on the next but one. But pretty much going, you know, I'll just start from the flat beginning. Okay. You know, even like gr- growing up and stuff like that. Um. I mean, obviously, you, you all knew me growing up. I'm sure I seemed like a quiet, normal kid, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I I say my upbringing was normal, you know, because that's what I was used to. You know, obviously, my mom and my dad got divorced and all that fun stuff. But I never really paid much attention to that. I was like three or four years old. So that really didn't affect me. But what kind of what my mindset was in was, like, obviously, I know – you know, my dad loved me very much. Mom loved me very much. They still do. Um, but I felt like I needed to do things for them to prove, like, you should love me kind of deal. You know, I didn't feel like it was an unconditional thing, um, you know, especially with my dad. Like, I love my dad to death, you know. But as you know, he was my coach in yes. every, yeah. sport, every, every sport I was ever in. And, um, you know, I, that's how I, I viewed our relationship growing up. You know, and looking back, like, that's a silly thing to think. But, like, I looked at him as my coach in life, you know, so I didn't feel comfortable going to him if I was going through any issues or feeling some type of way. Like, I didn't want to go to him because he's my coach. He's going to tell me you're you're a man. You need to deal with this on your own and stuff like that. Like, I kind of felt ashamed of everything. Um, And then, you know, you know, with my mom's backstory, with what she was diagnosed with, you know, it was tough kind of growing up in that in that environment um you know it it was i didn't really feel like i could go to her and talk to her either 
you know, cause I, you know, with the multiple personalities, I don't know who I was talking to, you know, and she had her own problems going on. So I don't want to burden her with my problems. You know, me and Zach's relationship, my brother, yep. him and I took fighting to the extreme. You know, I, I don't know. I'm sure you have heard I, I've pulled a knife on him before when we were kids. Yeah. Um, just, we heard that. Just, yeah, exactly. Just, and that's just a, a thirst for power. So, you know, growing up, I didn't really at the time in my mind, I didn't feel like I had somebody I could talk to about any issues, school, what, whatever it might be, just life issues. So I just bottled all that up inside right. and I just kind of put on that, put on that fake face. Like everything's fine. I'm doing good. You know, smile here, go to family events and, and all that stuff and everything's going fine. Um, but like it never really, I never really felt a part of anything, especially in school. You know, if I wanted I never felt like myself. If I wanted to be like more like hang out with the jocks and stuff like that, you know, I'd, I'd talk more about sports. I'd change my outside appearance and stuff to get accepted from people. Like your outfit of just stuff. Be, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Outfit, you know, and just what I would talk about to people. I, like I always felt like I had to be somebody else to get accepted by somebody. Right. You know, and, and you know, I did develop a core group of friends in high school. Um, and I – talk to a couple of them occasionally um still today but uh like i said it really wasn't until after high school when things got bad you know yeah i smoked weed and drank you know just like a normal high school kid does you know that's it's usual for a high school kid after friday night football go to a house party drink a couple beers maybe smoke something you know that was like socially acceptable at the time um but that you know progressed into more and more and you know when I would smoke or where I would drink, you know, you'll hear some people say like, Ooh, I had that aha moment. Like, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. This is what makes me feel nothing, you know, feel okay with myself, kind of numb the feeling. Um, but it really wasn't like that for me until I, until I found heroin. Um, so, you know, I'm really just fast forwarding to that. You know, I was out of high school. I was working at Rudders, the convenience store. Um, and that's, you know, I, I met, one of my exes there and that's, you know, she introduced me more to like the pill side of things. Um, so we started out doing all that and then eventually that led into heroin, um, you know, snorting in at first. And this was, let's see, this was in 2000, probably 10 or 11. So it wasn't too, too long after I graduated high school. Um, it kind of fell, fell deep into that. Um, and, you know, her and I, you know, I had a good job. We were living together. Um, didn't really have any issues with our relationship until I picked up the needle. You know, the needle is what did me in, did her in. You know, three months after I picked that up, we got evicted from our apartment. Our relationship went to shit. Sorry. For no, you language. can curse. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, good. But, but, our, but our relationship just went way extremely downhill, you know, learned pretty much just Hated, started hating myself, hating the person I was. But at that point, it was just too late. You know, I, I already, I already knew what that that felt like. I knew that feeling, and uh, I, you know, I just couldn't stop. And at that time, honestly, I didn't want to stop because I was still enjoying it at that time. You know, yeah, I was developing a physical dependence to the to the drug, but I was still having a good time. It made me feel, it made me feel like I could escape from all those emotions and everything like that. So when um, you and, when you were talking about the the needle when you picked up the needle, mm-hmm. what yep. what's the difference beside uh, like between the needle and using pills? Is it a different high? So it's it's not a different high. It's instant. 
So it's, it's the time. Yeah, it's right into the bloodstream. You know, okay. you feel it at the snap of a finger um, versus snorting it or you're doing anything like that. Like you'll still feel it, but that initial hit, that initial shock of like it going, yeah, the, the needle, you know, that that's that. I mean, it's just so much more instant. And you'll hear addicts and alcoholics talk about instant gratification. We, we want it. We want something and we want it right away. And, you know, that's that's what the needle did for me. Right. Um, when you inject it, David, does it last as long? I mean, because it's instant. So does the high go away quicker because it's in the system faster or does um, it last about the same? You know, to be completely honest, I don't know. OK, I mean, it's it's, you know, because that initial feeling is so overwhelming, you kind of lo- I kind of lost track of time. OK. Um, you know, so to be completely honest, I, I really not sure. I know, you know, going snorting or not, not using a needle, you know, in theory, in my head, it would probably last longer because it takes longer for it to really kick in. So I think it would last long. I don't know how long, like the the medical and how long it metabolized, all that stuff. I didn't really into that, but, um, but yeah, so like I said, as soon as I started using the needle, I mean, everything just, you know, I, I, I used to say I lost everything, but I didn't lose it. I just gave it all away. Like losing something is, I don't know where it's at. I knew exactly where it was at. You know, it was everything, every paycheck, everything I did was going to to drugs to get me to feel something or nothing really. Um, so, yeah, you know, we got evicted from the apartment. Um, I think at that time I moved back in with my mom. Um, she had no idea what was going on at the time. Um you know, I was able, I was able to hide it pretty well. You know, addicts and alcoholics were pretty, pretty good at manipulating and kind of hiding the fact that we do what we do. Um, Absolutely. Cause Kyle must've hid it for years from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and eventually, you know, it got to the point where my mom, I, I think she knew she just didn't want to say anything. Um, she didn't want to come kind of admit that to herself, but, uh, you know, eventually, you know, still using, you know, I was still able to hold down a job though. So that's again, how I kind of justified my using, I'm still able to work. I still am able to bring home a paycheck, even though my whole paycheck was going to drugs. Um, eventually I ended up moving out with my moving out of my mom's moving in with my ex, um, who we had the apartment together to her parents' house, which was just a terrible mistake. Um, two addicts living together is never a good combination. And that, that really became our lives. You know, we would wake up sick. Um, and then we'd have to figure out how are we going to get money for the day? Cause she couldn't hold down a job. I couldn't hold down a job. I probably worked at like six different subways in the span of the time me living there, just going from job to job oh. before I would, before I would either end up quitting them or just not showing up to work because I was sick. You know, I, when I, when I was sick, I couldn't do anything. My mind was focused on, how am I getting that next one? Um, so yeah. Uh, and then as you well know, you know, um, she was pregnant and we, we had a kid. Um, and that was really my first, you know, op- child use services got involved. So that's really my first introduction to going to a treatment center to going to rehab. It was pretty much, Hey, you have to go here if you want to be a father kind of thing. Okay. Um, Went in there, scared shitless, didn't know what to expect. You know, um, was was I done in my head? Nah, I was just going there to get the cord off my ass, to get my family off my ass and stuff like that. 
Um, so I went there um, at a place up in Lancaster called Retreat. Um, went there for, I think, 14 days. My insurance cut me after 14 days. Um, didn't really pay attention. Just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, 12 steps. Woohoo. Uh, God, God thinks I'm too far gone, so I'm not even going to try to worry about any God or religion right now. Um, and I went home and relapsed literally that same night uh, that I was discharged. And, uh, okay. Can I weeks? just interrupt? Yeah. Do they literally yeah. tell you that your 14 days are up because of insurance and release you? Uh huh. So they actually don't try to get extensions or anything like that. It's basically oh, no. all about insurance at that point. They do. They, okay. they definitely do. Um, you know, I've worked in a treatment center down here in Florida. Okay. They definitely, they definitely do. Um, they have people who talk to insurance companies, you know, they pull up, you know, you're meeting with the, uh, you meet with a psychologist, you meet with a doctor and, you know, they go over all that for the insurance company. You know, it's just depending on what insurance company you have, some of those are going to be able to keep you longer. Some of those, once you're there, they're, they're not going to pay for it anymore. So it's not like the treatment center because in in the end, treatment center is also a business too. You know, that's how they make their money is out of treatment centers. So they're going to, out of insurance. So they're going to try to keep people there as long as they can. Okay. It's just at, at the time I really didn't have a good policy. It wasn't even my policy. It was either my mom's or my dad's. But yeah, so I went home and I ended up relapsing the the first night. And two weeks later and about $2,000 later, I found myself right back in the same treatment center. Um, it was that quick. Oh. You know, even after even after having that the, the 14 days, you know, I was like, oh, okay, so this is what it's like. I can do this, yada, yada, yada. And it just doesn't last. You know, the, the physical part was over from the addiction, but it's that mental obsession that sneaks up on you and it takes so many people out. I mean, the mental obsession is the tough part. Getting getting sober is easy. Staying sober is the tough part. Um, so, yeah, so I went back in after two weeks and I laugh about it now. I mean, at the time, obviously, I wasn't laughing, but uh, I, I was like, maybe there's something to this whole thing now. So I paid a bit more attention. Um and I ended up staying there for like 20 days. So I don't know why they kept me longer. I don't know. And I actually ended up coming down to Florida for the first time. Um, so I came down to Florida to a halfway house down here, did IOP and all that fun stuff. I treated it more like a vacation. I wasn't serious about it at all. I was going, I was going to the beach every day. You know, I don't, I don't want to get a job. You know, I just want to go to the beach, hang out by the pool. Like we lived in like a seven bedroom mansion, like right on the intercoastal down here in Florida. You posted you know, beautiful was... pictures on Facebook while that was right? happening. I remember. <laughs> I was thinking Absolutely. he's really doing good down there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing great. No. Um, so and the way it worked back then, the first month of rent was free because I was in what they call PHP, which is post-hospital. I don't know what it stands for, but it's a higher level of care right out of inpatient. So the first month was free, and that you typically use that to get a job and to start getting income. I used that to go to the beach and just fuck off the whole time. Um, So so the month came up, and... You know, I didn't have any money. You know, mom and dad, they weren't going to pay for me to stay down there if I wasn't doing anything. So I came back up to Pennsylvania and that same night went out drinking, you know. So it doesn't matter how far along you're removed from drugs or alcohol. I found that out. It's just, you know, you have to work on yourself. So I went out drinking the first night I got back and, you know, that that was my last run. Um you know, I pray to God that I don't have to go through that again. But uh, that last run, at the end of it, I was 120 pounds soaking wet, living out of my car. 
Um, you know, it, it started out with alcohol and, you know, it, it got to the point, you know, where I, I was okay if I died. I've pretty much accepted either I'm going to die from this or I'm going to be sober because I know for a fact I can't keep living in the in-between. Um, and, you know, that, that and back to the mental part of it, I knew what it was doing to me. You know, I knew it was destroying me, destroying every single relationship. Mom wanted nothing to do with me at the time. Um, I got kicked out of my dad's house, got kicked out of my grandparents' house. You know, my brother, when I was pulled over from Northern Regional, my brother told him to search my car. You know, so it was it was to that point where it was just like, oh, shit. Um, and it was actually during that time that uh, I found out Kyle had passed okay. um, while I was while I was deep in addiction. Did you um, know he was using at that point? I, I had no idea. Okay. No idea whatsoever. Um, totally caught me off guard. I actually remember I was at my dad's house, and when he told me, I guess my mom had called him. And, uh, you know, going back to how messed up my mindset was at the time, you, you know, you know how when some people die, you know, people will drink, have a drink for them. You know what I mean? Yep. In my mind, I went out and I shot heroin form okay you know and, and that's that's where my mindset was you know i was i was gonna literally do the thing that took his life you know looking back on that it's just like how how can you think that how you know and that's just the grip that this has on people's minds it makes you do shit that just doesn't make sense yeah. um, and i appreciate you sharing that because we heard that after people came to his viewing like literally they were doing it and and it was yeah. like how can like they just saw someone pass and how can yeah. they do it so your explanation is yeah. perfect like now gonna, we now ask. we understand like yeah. that's why they do it so it's kind of like in mm -hmm. honor because that's where your mind well, is at and that's that's where yeah. my mind was at and yeah. you know the the crazy thing is is when addicts hear somebody has passed away from a certain batch, they'll go and search that batch out because they know that's good shit. Okay. That's that's how our minds operate, you know, because we're always looking for that strongest instant gratification. And a lot of a lot of people, they're willing to take that gamble. You know, even if somebody just passed away from something that the dealer got to him, people will try to go to that dealer to get the same thing. You know, and it makes it's me, just makes me think that Kyle might have done that. Like he might have heard somebody passed away and he went and got it. It's it, it's hard to tell, you know. And back back when I was using, you know, fentanyl was just getting introduced. You know, it's not as nearly as big as it is nowadays. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people were cutting the heroin with fentanyl, and you know, fentanyl, you know, one tiny little speck can be enough if you don't have a tolerance. He died just of fentanyl. His autopsy gotcha. said was fentanyl, and of course, like you said, in 2014. The coroner told me he probably didn't know that it had fentanyl in it. Yeah. So mm -hmm. he died instantly, but it was fentanyl that killed him. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, and again, you know, that every, every time I would use, I knew I was gambling, you know, and to be honest, there was some times where I was like, I hope this is my last one, meaning I hope this kills me. Um, you know, and I didn't care about the consequences. I didn't care about how it would make my family feel, how it would make people who love me feel, you know, I was selfish. You know, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And if it kills me, it kills me. So uh, and again, oh, sorry, go ahead. There was no fear there then. No, no, fear. No, there. there was no fear. Absolutely no fear. Um, you know, and, and it's crazy. You how know, do we you, get, you hear... how do we get people? Okay. 
to do that with their lives without the addiction? How, how can we get people to conquer things without the fear, just like you explained with your addiction? Like, you have no fear. You see what I'm saying? Uh-uh. So, how over your brain? Like, yeah, but how can we get you. that mentality be of... fearless. Yes, okay. to be fearless, but still chase after what you're going for. So, if I have a passion... Why am mm-hmm. I fear? Why am I fearing stuff? You know what I mean. If I'm, if that's my passion, why not go for it? Kind of the same. It's different. Yeah. But yeah, no, you see no, what I, I get what you mean. And you know, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it has to do with what we tell ourselves in our mind. You know, one one bad, and I'm finding that out. One bad thing goes wrong if I'm chasing a passion. I want to throw in the gloves. You know, that's just my mindset. And you know, when I get to the twelve steps. And I'm a huge believer in the 12 steps can be used for anybody, addict, non-addict. Yes. You know, and, you know, when I'll go, when I go through them, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll realize alcohol and drugs is mentioned one time in the 12 steps in the first step. That's it. Everything else is me. What's wrong with me in my mind? You know, so the 12 steps, it's the new design for, it's a, it's a design for a new life, you know, and. It's not about alcohol or drugs. That wasn't my problem. I'm my problem. I need to get out of my own way. Right. Right. You know, you know, I just use that alcohol and drugs as a solution. That was your me. crutch, right? Exactly. You know, so uh Yeah. Um so like I said, at the end of that run, I was living in my car and I don't know what came over me, you know, call it a god moment, call it what you will. Uh, I was like, well, I might as well go back to treatment. I don't know if they're going to take me because I still owed them co-pays for the last couple times. And I called them up and they're like, yeah, come on in. So they scholarship me. So I got to go there for, for nothing down, anything like that. And uh, I actually took the shit seriously this time. You know, I learned much more about me. And um, it's something, you know, I've told Maddie this too. My last time in treatment, she sent me a letter. And uh, I remember reading it in my room. I went in, closed the door, made sure nobody came in my room when I read it because I, I can only imagine what this letter would say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just saying that she still loves me. You know, she wants the old me back, and I broke down. You know, and at that moment, I broke down. I got in the shower, and I actually prayed for the first time in God knows how long. You know, I was just like, God, just help me. Um, you know, and I've told Maddie that. Like, she that, that letter definitely lit the fire under my ass to actually do something with my life. Um, you know, and I, as you know, me and Maddie's relationship, her and I were extremely close, you know, especially with her growing up, you know, with my mom going through what she was going through, you know, I was a big part of her life and she's a big part of my life and I love her to death for it. Um, but yeah, so after that letter, you know, I started praying. I didn't know what I was praying to. I didn't know who I was praying to. Um, but I was just saying, if anybody's up there, just help me. And that was it, you know, just reaching out and asking for help. Um, so time came for me to discharge from there. Um, my mom was gracious enough to buy me another ticket down to Florida, the same recovery house I was in the first time. And uh, I actually started doing what was suggested of me. You know, my, my house manager, we had to find a sponsor and stuff like that. So I went to a meeting and I met my sponsor. He's still my sponsor to this day. Um, his name's Dan. I love him to death. He's actually going to be in the wedding. Um, but you know, he, he taught me what was taught to him. You know, he took me through the big book. He, you know, he got to know me on a personal level. It wasn't just like, Oh, Hey, how are you? Let's go through the 12 steps. See you later. 
you know, him and I have developed a really, really strong bond. And, you know, that's something that I never really felt like I had in life. And, you know, when I first started going to the rooms of AA, it was, I felt like I was at home. You know, there's nowhere else in a room you can say stupid shit that you've done when you were drunk and how many DUIs. Like I had five, like somebody would say I had five DUIs and the whole room would laugh. You know, like yeah. normal people, <laughs> normal people don't laugh at that. But like people in the, in the rooms, they can relate to all that stuff because they've all done it before too. Um, you yeah, know, so I had it was a really privilege. Cool. I had the privilege to go to meetings. Um, mm -hmm. And you're so right. Like they are so close. And nobody yeah. judges anybody and they share yeah. their stories and people laugh and people cry. And yeah. it's it just, it always makes me feel happy to be there, mm -hmm. even though I'm the guest. Like they yeah. welcomed me. Like I've spoke at a couple, you know, when, mm -hmm. when comments came up, like I stood up and I said things. Yeah. That is the closest family that I've ever seen in a, in a Absolutely. group meeting like that. Like it is, and it's, it's a mixture of ages it's a mixture mm -hmm. of time sober and it, they're mm -hmm. just so encouraging of each other. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, my, my really, when I got started out, my group of sober, sober guys that I would hung out with, they were all in their sixties, you know? And if you would have told me Friday night, I'd be going to a diner <laughs> eating dinner. with a bunch of <laughs> guys. I'd be like, You're absolutely right. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed that, you know, and, and they, they taught me so much about, about AA and stuff like that and you know I was able to actually go to them if I had any issues which I wasn't I didn't I felt like I could go to them you know that's the first time I felt like I could talk to somebody I didn't have to bottle it up inside um so like and then you know obviously we, we got to work on the steps now you know with the 12 steps like I said I knew what they were I saw them hanging on the wall but the whole God part scared me because you know I was raised Catholic and I was taught oh my understanding God loves us but at the same time if I lie I'm going straight to hell kind of thing you right. know so obviously you know I'm shooting heroin and doing all this stupid shit why would God have care about me at all you know I'm just I'm already in hell there's no saving me but you know it was explained to me it's a God of my own understanding you know, it doesn't have to be a Christian God. It doesn't have to be any specific religious God. It's just a power greater than myself. And my sponsor was like, go out in the ocean and try and stop a wave from crashing. You can't. That's a power greater than yourself. So try and stop the sun from rising. You can't. That's a power greater than yourself. You know, so a lot of people, they'll use nature. They'll use the ocean. They'll use just peaceful things. So some people will use the rooms because how can a room full of people have all these years sober when I can't get a day sober? You know, that's a power greater than myself is all these people together in sobriety. You know, me, I found what kept me sane in the moment, you know. So, I mean, and it, and it changed, you know. First it was my son, you know, and then it was family. And then it was, you know, it, it changed from things to thing, you know, but it kept me sane in the moment. It kept me grounded. And that's what I started to use. And that's really, you know, the first step. Obviously, I knew I was powerless over drugs and alcohol because just look at myself. I was 120 pounds, you know, and had no money, you know, and then. The second step came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore Mr. Sanity. And it doesn't say must believe. It said came to believe. So it's not going to be instantaneous snap of the fingers, boom, I believe in God. You know, it's it's day by day, you know, you start to realize, oh, shit, you know, maybe there is something to this. You know, I start praying, you know, and, and stuff starts kind of happening. You know, I feel happy. You know, I feel joyous and free, which is mentioned in the big book here. Um you know, and step three, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as I understood him, you know, and that's just pretty much just saying, I surrender, white flag in your hands, just whatever, whatever you do for me, I'm a do, 
you know um and and it, it that that part it might sound easy but it's pretty tough you know when you because when you're so used to doing what you want to do when you want to do it giving up that that and just surrendering that it's a shot to the ego and you know believe it or not when i weighed 120 121 pounds soaking wet i thought i was hot shit you know i was like <laughs> you, 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 you know and that <laughs> And that, that's just, that was my ego, you know, that, that was just my ego. Like, Oh, you know, I'm a badass. I do all this shit. And, and, but no, no, it's, it, that's not the case at all. So, you know, being able to surrender that and just be like, realize like when I run my life, I run it in, straight into the ground. So I need somebody else to run my life. And that just goes with, you know, taking suggestions from people with more time. Like my sponsor call me at eight o'clock every single night. If you miss a call, I'm not your sponsor anymore. Find a new sponsor. You know, and, you know, it might sound a bit extreme, but that taught me responsibility that held me accountable for something, um, you know, and, and same thing with the job. You know, I was working warehouse jobs where I was making 15, 20 dollars an hour. He's like, do you think you deserve that job? It's like, yeah, kind of. He's like, why? He's like, what's separate? The only thing separating you from a homeless person is a roof over your head that your insurance company is paying for. Other than that, I'm no different than a homeless person. He's like, so you're telling me a homeless person want to take a job for minimum wage? But but and you wouldn't, you know, so that that kind of stuff, that humbling, that humbling stuff, you know, really taught me, you know, obviously I'm not hot shit. You know, I have a curfew. I'm 20, what, 25 years old and I have a curfew. Like, come on, you know, and and, uh, you know, it's just going through that stuff. And, you know, the more I just kind of threw in the flag and just be like, all right, you know, just guide me. Tell me what to do a lot of stress started to melt off my shoulders. You know, I started worrying about shit less and less, you know, and life became a lot better. You know, I actually woke up in the morning and was looking forward to the day. You know, I'm, I'm, I was so used to waking up being like, oh man, now how am I going to get this one? How am I going to get money? Who I have to lie to today? Am I even going to live through the day? You know, asking myself all those questions instead. Now I get to wake up and be like, oh, okay. I wonder what today is going to be like, you know, so that mental freedom that comes with that surrendering, it was uh was just eye opening and you know that brings us to the four step and a lot of people freak out about the four step that's the the moral inventory of all of our wrongdoings you know it's all of that the sex inventory and you find out a lot about your stuff my sponsor um he bought me a pack of cigarettes before i started my four step <laughs> he's like you're going to need these um but really it it's just writing shit down that if I kept in my head, it would take me back out and just make me relapse. You know, it's, it's all that stuff. So essentially, you know, you write down your, you know, okay, so this person did this to me that made me feel this way, yada, yada, yada. And just going through all that, you know, my sponsor made me write down the name of every person I've ever known in my whole entire life. Um, was I on the list? Was I on the list? You were on the list because I knew you, but I didn't, I didn't, have, any, I didn't have any resentments against you. Um, but, uh, but no, and I asked him, I was like, well, why should I do that if I wasn't using when I was growing up? He's like, just do it and you'll be surprised. And I'm going down, I'm writing all these names. You know, I was like, oh man, I wish I had a yearbook, you know, writing down all these names. <laughs> and uh, I, I forget his name now, but I, I wrote his name. I knew him in elementary school and I was like, that kid took my lunch one day. And I was like, wait, <laughs> how do I remember that? And that's the thing, you know, even though that happened when I was in elementary school, it was still in my mind. 
Yeah. You know, and I wrote that down and that was on my four step. You know, it's 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 a clear moral inventory of who was I pissed at and what was my part in it. You know, and I come to find out I was I was the one who was wrong in that. I got pissed off at people because of what they did to me. You know, I didn't think about, okay, I did that to them, so they were rightfully able, you know, it's yeah. okay that they got mad, you know, because of what I did. I just looked at what they did to me. Right. I didn't care what I did to them. You know, so, and it's kind of made me realize I'm selfish, I'm egotistical, you know, and screw everybody else. Like, I felt like, honestly, I felt like shit after writing everything down and just realizing, like, oh my God, like, I'm jealous all the time, I'm fearful of other people. You know, and it's just, oh, my God, like there's so much wrong with me. And, uh, you know, so him and I, we spent I think we spent about three or four hours going over everything, all my resentments, you know, all of my relationships and how I treated, you know, my significant other in relationships and going through all of that. And by the time I was done, like, you know, I was a little depressed, you know, I was like, holy hell, I'm a horrible person. He's like, go home, meditate for an hour. Call me in the morning. (laughs) I went. Thanks. I feel like shit, but thank you. So I went home. I went home and I meditated for the hour. And I I rarely remember dreams, but that night I had a pretty vivid using dream, you know. And you know, I I remember most of it to this day. You know, it was a bunch of my friends I met in rehab. You know, we were all hanging out together, and everybody relapsed, and yeah, whatever, whatever. But I woke up that next morning on my hands and knees in the praying position on my bed. And I've never done that before. I've never changed positions in sleep. Yeah, my, I might roll over, but I've never literally gotten out of bed and gotten the praying position and woke up like that. And I just was like, All right, this isn't a coincidence that just, just this just happened after I did that hour meditation, after I went over out of how shitty of a person I am. So like at that point, I was like hook, line, sinker, sold. There's there's somebody up there. Yes. You know, that's um, awesome. yeah, you know, and it, it scared me to be honest with you. I was like, I woke up, I didn't know where I was, <laughs> but you know, from, from that point on, you know, it's just kind of maintenance steps, you know, number six, ready to have God remove all the defects of, of character, you know, my jealousy, my fears and, and things like that. And, you know, at that time, like I said, you know, I was hook, line and sinker. God's God's got me. God's going to take care of me. You know, uh, yeah, I'm going to fuck up. I'm human. It's what I do. There's not a day that goes by where I'm not fearful or jealous or hold some type of resentment, even to this day. I'm not perfect, you know. Um, But, you know, having having God to God be there, I know everything's going to be okay. Um, You know, and I use God just because it's a lot longer to say higher power every time I say God. So I just say God. It shortens it up. It's not really the Christian God. It's God of my understanding. Um, but you know, and number seven, humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings, you know, six and seven, they're kind of squished together a lot. That kind of goes a lot with, uh, goes hand in hand with like my shortcomings are resentful, you know, and really I, when I was going through that, I'll ask him to make me aware of it. Like I said, you know, I'm still going to get resentful for something, but if I can be aware that I'm getting resentful for something, I can check myself before I do something stupid. Yeah. You know, instead of letting my emotions take control, you know, I can take that step back. You know, in the rooms, they say first thought wrong, you know, you know, so if somebody were to piss me off and say something to me, my first thought is like, I'm going to beat the shit out of this guy. <laughs> let, me, let me take a step back and let God intervene. Maybe he's having a bad day. I don't know where he's coming from. I don't know what's going on in his life. It is what it is. That's it. That's his stuff. 
you know, I can't control what people say to me. I can only control how I react to situations. Yep. Um, you know, and there's, I forget who said it, um, some philosopher, I'm sure, but he's like, life is 90% what happened. No, 90%. Oh shit. Well, hold on. I'm gonna get this. No, life <laughs> is 10% what happens to you. 90% how you react to it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so true. You know, I can let, I can let somebody piss me off first thing in the morning and I can let that ruin my whole day. Yep. You know, just wake up on the wrong side of bed. I have a bad day. I'm just pissed. I don't know why I'm pissed off, but I'm pissed off. You know, I'm, and everybody has those days, you know, but it's, you know, when that happens and I still have those day to day, like, you know, as you know, I'm a golfer, you know, so if I have a bound round of golf, I get pissed off. I'm like, I'm golfing in Southern Florida. Why am I mad? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and it's just checking myself to kind of bring me back. It'd be like, my life really isn't that bad. Not at all. You know, it's beyond my wildest dreams, which a lot of people say, if you would have told me five years ago that I'd, you know, have five years sober, live in South Florida, being a PGA pro at a, at a country club, I'd be like, you're crazy. Um, you know, so it's amazing kind of what happens. Um, and then, you know, so after six and seven, we go to eight, we make a list of all the persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. And this is another step that a lot of people go out on just because this is a step where you have to, okay, I made this person mad. This is what I did. I need to make it right. You know, and that, that is the most humbling experience for an alcoholic or addict is to admit when they're wrong and actually admit to that person face to face if possible. You know, so when I made my amends list, you know, you know, obviously family members, stuff like that were on there. And I actually flew home strictly to make amends when I was on this step. And, you know, I sat down with, you know, my mom, Craig and Maddie. And I was like, look, here's what I did. What can I do to make it right? You know, I'm not going to say I'm sorry, because let's be honest, I'm sorry meant nothing to them because I said it all the time. Yeah. You know, so it's the action, you know. And, you know, I was like, what can I do to make it right? Um, and they're like, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, some people, you know, I know of some, uh, like my one buddy, Matt, um, he's like, I think he said his brother's like, anytime I ask you to make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you have to make me, a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and he does, you know, and it's all part of the immense process. You know, it's just being able to man up to my, what I did to people and just clean my side of the street. If they tell me to screw off, they don't never want to see me again. Okay, that's fine. I got it off my chest. I said what I needed to say. I'll let them be, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it's just going into it with no expectations, not expecting it to go bad, not expecting it to go good. You know, my sponsor first told me an expectation is a premeditated resentment. And it's very, very true. Um, expectations fuel disappointment. Yeah, absolutely. Because if, that, if if that situation doesn't live up to that expectation, how does that make us feel? Yep. Upset, bummed, depressed. You know. Um, so you know, with expectations, it's 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 a dangerous dangerous game. You know, I play with that. You know, because it's, you know, and my expectations, it's never going to be good enough. You know, I get I get one one good thing going, I want something better. Yeah. You know, it's it's that addiction of more. You know, I don't. I'm not happy with what I have, you know, I want more, 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 more. I think more things will make me happy. I think, you know, and it's just, you know, it's, that's just how it is, you know, especially with alcohol and drugs. I don't care what it was. 
just so I don't feel again. If you were if you were to put a huge concoction of everything in front of me and told me I don't know what this is, but this is how it's going to make you feel, I'm doing it. You know, it, it's it's getting more of that feeling. Okay. Um, but uh, so you know, after the amends, you know, it's ten step. You know, it's your daily inventory. You know, at the end of the day, you kind of look back through your day. Was I resentful? Was I fearful? Was I jealous? Did I piss anybody off? Do I owe anybody amends? And kind of go through that. And again, that keeps myself in check. That keeps me grounded. Um, and, you know, and you pray and you ask God, you know, you know, help me remove whatever I'm feeling that day. You know, give me the strength to make an amends to this person when I see him next and stuff like that. And then 11 and 12, you know, it's all about the maintenance steps, you know, having, you know, praying God, asking for allow me to carry out his will, you know, whatever that may be. Um, you know, and I found that what I think God's will is for me, it's not, it's ever changing. You know, when I was two years sober, I actually got accepted to a university to become a minister. And I was going to go down that route. Um, you know, kids ministry, stuff like that. And uh, after that, I ended up working at a Publix in the warehouse, and I got a site manager there. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this is his will for me. I'm going to do that. After that, I started working in treatment, and I became a tech. And I was like, okay, helping others. This is cool. This has to be his will for me. Nope. So after that, you know, I got back into golf, and now I'm, now I'm golfing. Is this what it's going to be? I don't know. But I'm just along for the ride, you know. Um, he, he's, you know, God's going to put something in my life. And I'm going to go with it. He wouldn't put it in my life if it wasn't good for me. Right. That's that's truly my belief. Um, you know, and, and going through those steps, obviously, I learned a lot about myself, um, a lot about myself. And, you know, it's helped me in my relationships immensely. You know, like mom and I have a great relationship. Me and Maddie have a good relationship. Zach actually told me where he lives now. Um, cause we're all <laughs> <laughs> he, he told everybody not to tell me where he lives. Um, you know, me and my dad have a great relationship and, you know, the relationships are back in, and, you know, obviously, you know, you met Christine, you know, her and I, you know, we're engaged getting married next year. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just a crazy feeling, you know, because like I said, I, at five years ago, I was okay with dying. And now I actually have like a life like I love and I love doing it. I love my job. I love everything about my life. Do I still complain? Absolutely. Our AC was broken down a couple months ago and it sucked in Southern <laughs> Florida. It's like, you know, so obviously I'm still going to complain. It's not like I'm a holier than thou goody two shoes, you know, um, We're all but human. I find myself my complaints don't match up to what I went through, you know? And, you know, I believe if, if God can bring me through that and put me in a position where I am today, there's nothing he can't do for me. You know, you know, from literally the brink of death to actually giving me a new life and something I never expected or thought I even deserved to have. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> It's hard to put into words, really. And your story's it's... so powerful. I mean, just mm -hmm. to say, like, we're sitting here and I'm thinking, how did I not know this? You know, all those years, how did I not know this or even mm -hmm. suspect it? You know, yeah. it's, it's crazy. And that just goes to show when people say you don't know what the person next to you is going through. It is so true. And, you know, even what? through these podcasts, people say, 
I never would have known, or I don't know anybody like that. And I'm like, no, you do know. You just don't mm-hmm. know that you know that yeah. there's someone next to you that has that same issue. So your your story is really powerful, and um, I believe in God, and, and I love your definition of the God. Like, it doesn't have to be the Catholic God that we learned through, through school. Yeah. It, it's a God that works for you. Absolutely. And, and I am, yeah. like, so happy for you. Like, it's, it excites me because we hear all these stories, and we don't hear the end all the time. And the end is those that don't have hope, there is hope. Like you, were, like you said, five years ago, you didn't care if you died. And today, like you have so much to offer and so much to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah. It's amazing. And, and believe me, any, anybody can do it. You know, you know, there's nobody that's too far gone with this whole thing. You know, I've known people who've been in 20 plus treatment centers and they're picking up their year chip, their two year chip. You know, it's. Nobody's too far gone, and yeah, you know, it, it's it's a daily thing. You know, you have to make sure you don't get lackadaisical and kind of slack off. You know, you know, a few months ago, four or five months ago, you know, I I started feeling why am I so depressed? Why like what's going on with me? And you know, and and you know, my actions and my thoughts kind of remind looking back of what I used to do when I was using like thank God I didn't relapse or anything like that but I stopped praying I stopped meditating you know I stopped going to meetings and I stopped calling people you know that I used to do and it sneaks up on you and before you know it you know like I said thank God I didn't I didn't relapse but could it have got to that point absolutely you know and it's it's not you know it's you have to ingrain it as a habit you know once it becomes a habit it's a lot easier to maintain. It's just putting in the work, getting to that point, and you know, so you know, okay, this is what I do. Stick into a routine. Wake up, pray, go do what I have to do for the day. Come home, pray, go to sleep. You know, should I meditate every night? Absolutely. There's some nights I work a double and I'm just exhausted and I want to come home and go to bed. So you know, I go to bed. But you know, it's getting that routine where my God obviously is first in my program. You know, anything I put above God, whether it be a relationship, a job, I'm going to lose that because if I put all my focus on that, I'm going to forget about praying. I'm going to forget about doing everything else. And, uh, you know, I'm eventually going to get back to that point where I relapse. It might be a day from today. It might be a year from today. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I don't look at it as a scary thing like, oh, man, I got to do this. I have to do this in order to stay sober. It's just become part of my daily life where if I don't do it, I feel uncomfortable. You know, like if, like there's been days when I actually when I was living in a recovery house, even I used to work at Panera Bread and uh, I had to walk to work. because obviously I didn't have a car and I didn't have any money for a bus pass or anything. And I would wake up and start walking to work and I'd be like, why do I feel off today? And I remembered, shit, I didn't pray. So I would get down on my hands and knees on the side of the street and pray. I didn't care if anybody was looking at me. It was what I needed to do. Um, so it's just doing stuff like that, you know, checking myself, you know, making sure my ego doesn't get in the way and, and talking to people and running my thoughts through other people. You know, when, in my first few years of sobriety, everything I did, I called my sponsor about and asked him, what are your thoughts on it? Everything I did. Hey, should I do this? 
you know, hey, should I move out of the, out of out of halfway? Hey, should I take this job? Hey, should I? Whatever I did, I ran it past that man, because me running my own life leads me back to a needle in my arm, right. you know. And eventually, you know, you know, I just had five years last week, and they say five years is when you get your marbles back, and then year <laughs> six, and then, yeah. and then year six, your head pops out of your ass. So, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, I have a long ways to go in this, but you know because of sticking with my sponsor and sticking with the sofa support group, you know, I learned how to maintain it a lot easier. I'm not white not white knuckling as people call, you know, I'm not a dry drunk or whatever you want to call it. I don't go through the day fighting the urge or fighting any notion of using, you know, when I worked in treatment center, you know, obviously, you know, we had clients come in where they had contraband on them and I'd be holding the stuff that I used to do in my hands stump it in the trash and there's not another thought that crossed my mind you know so it's it's to the point where that obsession has been lifted thank god you know you know obviously you know i still reminisce like oh remember that because there were i'm not gonna lie there were good times i did have some good times while i was high you know but i know where those good times eventually led me so i'm not gonna do it again um yeah i mean I, re I really don't know what much else to say. Um, I don't know if you had any questions for me about anything. Not really. I you mean, shared a lot. I yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> what would yeah, you no say problem. to that person out there that's desperate and um, don't care if they die? Like, what do you say the... to them? Um, pretty much. Look. You know, there's there's hope. You know, there's you're not too far gone. Go to this meeting. Go to that meeting. Get your hand up. Ask for help. And you know, and that that's kind of the the downside of, you know, saying something like that because I can tell somebody till I'm blue in the face they need to go to a meeting. It's up to that person to go to a meeting. Yep. You know, yeah, you know, I can help them out, and you know, maybe give them a ride if they really want to go. But if if I start giving them a ride, giving them gas money, buying them food, what I'm I'm not helping that person. They're just I'm just enabling that person to keep living the life their way they're living. I'm just giving him food and giving him rides and stuff like that. Right. Um. You know, and and that that's another thing too that, it, you know, in the big book it talks about God's will and living God's will and you know, but it also talks about action. You know. Um. There's actually a whole chapter called Into Action. You know, they call, there's a quote in there that says, faith without works is dead. You know, so yeah, I can sit on my ass all day and be like, oh, you know, this must be God's will for me. Play some video games, watch some TV, whatever. I'm not going to get anywhere in life with that. You know, so I actually need to put action into that. I just can't be lazy with it. I can't use God's will as an excuse for me just to be lazy with my life. You know, I'm not going to get any better. You know, so when the newcomer does come in, I'm going to be there. I'm going to give them my phone number if they need to talk. You know, I'll take them to meetings. But, you know, I've had sponsors where they stop calling me. Oh, well, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, that's on them. I'm not going to jeopardize my own recovery worrying about somebody else when I need to actually still keep myself in check. And, you know, my sponsor put it to me like this. If, if you're so focused on one person trying to get them even to go to a meeting, you're missing out on 10 to 20 other people who actually want help. 
you know, so it, you, you, I, you know, you ha- I have to look at it like that too. Um, so, you know, my hand's always out to help somebody if, if they want the help, okay. you know, good. Well, where do they find you if they, if they're asking for help, where can they find you? Um, meetings, you know, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, newcomers come to the meeting, the, the, you know, they might share something about being the first time there and, you know, I'll go up to them after the meeting, be like, Hey, talk to them a little bit. You know, if they have a phone, give them my number and stuff like that. And it's more so just giving them that outlet. You know, there's, there's phone lists that get passed out too, you know, where if they want a phone list, we'll write our numbers down and, you know, they can take it home with them. Um, you know, I've even met, I've even met people, you know, down here in Florida, you know, it's pretty bad down here. Um, people in the gas station, you know, and obviously you can tell they're drunk or messed up on something. They'll ask me for a dollar or whatever, something like that. And a lot of the times if I have a dollar, I'll give it to them. You know, a lot of people like, Oh no, get away from me. You're just going to spend it on alcohol or whatever. But they might, they might spend it on alcohol. My sponsor's like, who's to say that that dollar you gave them to, to buy on alcohol prevented them from having a seizure and dying? You know, that gave them another day to where they have another chance to get sober and help somebody else in the same position. You know, so when I look at it like that, it's just like, all right, yeah, well, you know, I don't do it every time. Um, you know, but you, you meet them all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like, like I said, you know, I probably ran into people that I think I know that they might be going through the same shit I'm going through. You know, you don't really know until somebody actually opens up about it. You know, so that's why I look at it as like, if I can help somebody, I'm going to help them, you know? Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Well, Dave, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank happy, you. Happy five years. Thank you. I'm, I'm yeah, really proud. Like, I'm really proud. I get emotional because you're doing a great job. <laughs> Make I sure appreciate you it. Keep in touch with us. Um, like I said, I'm going to be. Um, I'll be around. So when you get back to Pennsylvania, you can mm-hmm. come and do this live. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to do that for sure. Anything Real quick, uh, if you had to pick one step, which one's the most important, or are you going to say all of them are? <laughs> You read my mind there. Um, you are right yeah, about mean, the steps, though, yeah, as far as I it's mean, it's all about you. The first two aren't, but yeah. the, all the rest are is basically mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, you know, all of all of them would definitely be the right answer, you know. But for me and my journey, it was the third step, you know, really humbling myself and just saying I have no control over my life, you know, God or whatever, whatever's up there. It's all you. Um, so that was probably the most powerful for me. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's going to vary from person to person. You know, there's a million different ways to get sober, you know, so like, you know, like we were talking about, some people don't believe in the 12 steps. Some people it's called celebrate recovery. Some people go through churches and, you know, there's NA, there's HA, there's all these different AAAA or, and all of that, but it's all going through the same problem, which is that individual's thinking, that individual's way of life their way of being it's not so much what they're addicted to it's what they feel inside um you know like ca was derived from aa ca i believe uses the aa book na was derived from aa na has their own na book you know it's a lot to keep track of but it's it's a lot of the same message just different wording gotcha awesome now well yeah congrats on your five years thank you 
Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks, and David. We'll talk offline. I'll call you sometime. All right. Thanks yeah, for absolutely. all your time. We appreciate it. No problem. Love I appreciate you. you having me. Love you too. All right. Bye. See ya. See ya. Right. See ya. Bye.